Hello and welcome to Reverb, everyone. I am Calvin Pollock, and I'm joined on the mic, as always, by my co-host and co-producer, Alex Helberg. Alex, how's it going? I'm pretty good there, Calvin. How are you? Doing good. We are so excited today to be joined by Dr. Roger Stahl, who is a professor of communication studies at the University of Georgia. Roger studies rhetoric, media, and culture. But in large part, his work has focused on understanding propaganda and public relations as they relate to state violence, conflict, and security. He's written two books. His most recent book is Through the Crosshairs, War, Visual Culture, and the Weaponized Gaze. Before that, he wrote Militainment, Inc. in 2010. Uh, and he's published in a bunch of amazing rhetoric journals. And in a more public capacity, he has produced documentary films, including Theaters of War from last year, through the Crosshairs 2018, Returning Fire 2011, and Militainment Inc. from 2007, all of which are distributed by the Media Education Foundation. Roger and his work has been featured in such venues as NPR's All Things Considered, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, and now Reverb. We're so excited to have you, Roger. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Calvin and Alex. Yeah, yeah thank so uh, thank you so much for being here. We, you know, we were really excited to invite you on the show because Alex and I both saw the wonderful 2022 film Top Gun Maverick. Uh, I remember when Top Gun first came out. Alex, I think you saw it pretty early after its release, right? I did, yeah. At a, in a very uh, sort of the kind of environment that you imagine your everyday American goes to see it in uh, a hometown movie theater, you know, that only charges five bucks for admission, a dollar fifty for a bucket of popcorn, and you know, I'm right now. At, oh wait, sorry, I, I I have to put down my Pentagon script uh, for what I was supposed to read about my viewing <laughs> of that uh, <laughs> about my viewing of that. Yeah, yes. it was. Yeah, but I think I saw it before you, and you saw it shortly after. Well, no, actually, so I just saw it. So amazingly, oh, okay. amazingly, this tells you about how giant Top Gun Maverick was. It's still playing here in Logan, Utah at the Cheap Theater. I saw it like two weeks ago for the first time. And after seeing it, I was, of course, because I'm a rhetoric nerd and, and a culture nerd, I was doing a lot of research about it. And I came across Roger Stahl's article in the LA Times about the movie and about how it's part of this larger context of military influence and censorship in some cases of war-related movies. And that led both me and Alex to watch the documentary Theaters of War. And we realized that we need to do a much broader episode than just an episode about Top Gun Maverick. But staying on Top Gun Maverick for a second, did you like the movie? Roger, like, what did you think of it as a pure movie? I got to confess that I didn't see the film in the theater. I knew the DOD had supported it, and I wasn't too excited about financially supporting it myself. But luckily, a friend of mine had a, shall we say, less than legitimate copy that I was able to review. So to preface this, I really didn't get the full theatrical experience with the screaming jets and the thunderclaps and people cheering and yelling back at the screen. And I, I take it, you know, from people who really enjoyed the film, they saw it in the theater and they had that visceral experience. I didn't. I could only appreciate the film on a formal level. And on that level, I got to say, it was completely underwhelming, contained no surprises, was absolutely derivative and artless. The guys in my research group all got back from watching the movie all at the same time and agreed that this was just a version of Star Wars, where the the fighter jets have to go through some really daring maneuvers and fly sideways under bridges and through a tunnel to make a precise hit on the Death Star, in this case, the, the facility, the, the uranium enrichment facility that needs to be destroyed. And along the way, the guy that's supposed to make the hit has his instrument panel go out. So he's temporarily blinded and he has to sort of fly by feeling and also, also target by feeling. One of the other pilots literally says to him, don't think, just do, you know, like, Use the force. So I don't think that making an artistic statement or making something new or pushing the boundaries in any way was the point of this film. I think, I think a couple of things were the point, though. It's a response to certain kinds of anxieties. I mean, it's part of the whole wave of 80s nostalgia that we're currently going through with shows like Stranger Things, where we're projecting fantasies back into an earlier, more pure, better, more comfortable period of American life. And it's also a kind of antidote for all the anxiety and isolation that we felt during COVID. I mean, it represented 
the before times, what it was like to go to the movie theater in the presence of others and cheer together at the screen. And not only that, it was an opportunity to experience something that we haven't experienced for a long time, which is a momentary sense of national unity, of being able to transcend the political divide and rally around a fundamental American institution like Hollywood and Tom Cruise and American military strength and an imagined common enemy. I mean, as ridiculous as it was, the first Top Gun movie has become something of a touchstone for American popular culture and and, and something of a Rosetta Stone for understanding American militarism. Yeah, I, I appreciate that you said that because I think it's it's important a lot of times to judge a piece of culture on its own terms, right? Like what it is, what it has clearly set out to do. Just out of curiosity, even though you had the potentially a little sub Rosa version, did yours still have the, <laughs> the shot of Tom Cruise at the beginning welcoming us back to the movies? Hi everybody, and welcome to Top Gun Maverick. Thank you all for being here. Decades in the making and so many people, our incredible cast and crew, worked very hard to bring you the most immersive and authentic film experience we could. There's real F-18s, real Gs, real speed. So we're so happy you're here in this theater and seeing it on the big screen. So please enjoy as we all made it for you. Did yours include that? No, I oh, haven't yeah. seen that part. I've heard, I've heard that. That's right. That was, yeah, I heard that was part of, uh, you know, the Hollywood pitch once again. That was fascinating. Revise. Yeah, all the AMC movie theaters had closed by this point in 2020. So they really needed that, that pitch. They did. And, and it was it was kind of fascinating as not only a way of, you know, as as you were kind of alluding to welcoming us back to the movies after this long period of not having this, you know, communal get together of sitting down in a dark box with great sound. One of the things I thought was so fascinating about that intro was that it also was Tom Cruise saying, you know, these are real F-18s. These are real G's that you're seeing on all of our actors. Fa- real reactions to getting, you know, sort of pummeled with this, uh, the the real force that all of our you know military heroes are uh, have to endure but i guess to to kind of zoom out a little bit away from just the aesthetics of top gun maverick specifically in your research you uncovered a great deal about the partnership between the top gun production team so folks like jerry breckheimer uh, don simpson and uh, of course tony scott in the original the first one um yeah. So if you could tell us a little bit about how you learned about just how involved the military has been in the Top Gun franchise and how both of the Top Gun films uh, helped the military achieve its propaganda goals. Well, we didn't know too much about the military's involvement in the original Top Gun movie until about three years ago. But now we have the file and it's about 30 pages of script review notes, uh, requests for changes, notes back and forth between the producers and the military. So if you look through those script change requests, you find that the Navy wanted to take out all references to alcohol and alcoholism on the base. They also changed Kelly McGillis's character from Navy to civilian. They wanted to avoid any image of what they call fraternization or romantic relationships among officers. And then there was Goose's death, which was touchy because they don't ever want to suggest that their machines, their fighter planes, are failing and killing people. So they changed that part of the script to suggest that maybe Goose did something wrong. Then there's the issue of the enemy. I mean, everyone wonders why they didn't bother to name the enemy in that first film. The reason for that is because the DOD sent part of the early script or an early scenario to the State Department for approval. And they looked at it and said, well, we can't have the enemy be North Korea like you want it here because we're trying to draw down tensions between North and South Korea at the moment. And it can't be Libya because we don't want to give Gaddafi any ideas. So we recommend that you just keep it unsaid. Top Gun is not unique in this respect. I mean, when you go through the documents, you find that a lot of films are subject to these geopolitical interests and considerations and in the end become direct reflections of them. I would say it's a little bit of an outlier. In most cases, the military has no problem naming and demonizing official enemies. But in this case, I think the film was less about demonization, really, and more about celebrating and glorifying the military machine. That, that's extra fascinating, too. I mean, just in light of the focus on the equipment more and the sort of flashiness of it all versus the sort of explicit conflicts. I mean, not only because stripping that context away allows you to 
map it onto you know just about any conflict you want right like pick your enemy and sure it works but also of the uh, i think this was directly from your documentary how there was a direct line in one of the documents that you found where somebody from the navy or or some department of defense higher up had essentially said this movie succeeded in rehabilitating the navy's uh, and the u.s military's basically credibility after vietnam isn't that right yeah, that was in the database, the uh, official database that the military keeps that lists many of the projects they have cooperated on over the years. And there's a few sentences next to each entry. And the, the, the one next to Top Gun says that the film completed rehabilitation of the military's image after it had been savaged by the Vietnam War. So yeah, that was, that was one of the main functions of the film. Uh, scholars have been pointing out for years that Top Gun r- represented this kind of watershed moment where uh, aesthetically, at least as appeared on the screen, the United States emerged from the Vietnam War, emerged from the quagmire of Vietnam, the jungle and the muck, and instead kind of set up shop in the sky in a clean, sleek F-14. So it completely changed the dominant image of the military and allowed for a kind of selective forgetting of the past, of Vietnam in particular. I mean, for a couple of decades after Vietnam, Americans didn't want to do it again. They were extremely reticent to authorize military force. So it required an aesthetic intervention to remake the image of the military and and pave the way for the first Gulf War, which happened just a few years later. Forgetting Vietnam was one of the functions, but another function was just completely depoliticizing conflict, right? You don't have to justify the war. Uh, You don't have to even name the enemy. I mean, it's an implicit message of American exceptionalism. We can just do what we want to do in the world, no questions asked. That's, of course, the implicit message of Top Gun Maverick, too, that the United States has every right to bomb anywhere else in the world that it wants, doesn't even have to justify it or, again, name the country, that it just has the uh, exceptional right to conduct operations like that. We could try a thought experiment and reverse the roles, What if the Iranian government had a hand in making a very popular movie about bombing uranium facilities in some unnamed superpower? We'd be freaking out about it. We'd say they're condoning war crimes, which they would be. But when we make the movie, nobody bats an eye. So so that's one function of the film, which is that normalization of that story of American exceptionalism. Then on top of that, you have the function of the film as a kind of weapons advertisement for forging emotional connections between the American public and, in, in this case, the F-14. And these kinds of emotional connections accumulate so that next time there's a defense appropriations bill in front of Congress, it sails right through. And then, of course, the, the most obvious function of a film like this is recruiting. The Air Force really made out, uh, much to the chagrin of the Navy. The Navy actually commissioned a study to figure out exactly how well Top Gun worked for them and whether people thought it was about the Air Force instead, and they found really predictably that, yeah, people thought it was about the Air Force. About 40% of the, the audience <laughs> thought this was an Air Force movie. Yeah, the Navy went to work on uh, initiating projects that were Top Gun-like, but were obviously about the Navy. Mm-hmm. And so they, they initiated a, a television show in 1988 called Super Carrier because they knew that uh, aircraft carriers, you know, nobody would mistake that for the Air Force. Uh, and they could still have planes. So a very uh, Top Gun-like television show went online during the late 80s uh, that was designed to glorify the Navy and, and kind of fix this problem that they have with associating Top Gun with the Air Force. Yeah, that seems to be something that comes up a little bit in this research is some of the weird, like, intra-military institutional bickering, like, across Navy, Air Force, and other branches yeah, you're picking up on uh, the potential for territorial disputes, which are all over the place in the documentation. The The process is pretty centralized, but each branch maintains their own office in California near Hollywood. So the potential for these kinds of disputes is, is pretty high. Everybody's kind of envious of the Air Force because they have all the shiny toys. One example of that that, that comes to mind is Zero Dark Thirty from 2012. So at the beginning, the, both the CIA and the DOD were involved in the script negotiation process, but eventually the CIA got the upper hand and kind of elbowed the DOD out. Ultimately, that became a story about the CIA using torture techniques to extract information and find Osama bin Laden, which was complete BS, but that was the ultimate story. And the uh, DOD 
didn't want to play second fiddle to that, so they stepped away. But there are a lot of other movies where the branches work well together. Transformers was the first franchise to utilize all four branches. Or Lone Survivor in 2013. Uh, that movie was about Navy SEALs, but the Army was heavily involved in that as well. Right. Yeah, I, we want to get to some some other films and TV shows that you've examined in your research. Just staying on Top Gun, there were a few things that jumped out at us as like, okay, this content choice is very rhetorical and was clearly approved by the military, right? So we've we've discussed the the non-identified enemy, but very clearly seems to be Iran because it's about uranium and uranium enrichment and the threat of nuclear weapons. But a couple other things, we mentioned the objective of increasing recruitment for pilots, but the movie like takes a very direct shot at drones too, which is kind of fascinating. Top Gun 2 does at least, right? Because drones weren't around back in the 80s. Why do you think that choice was in there? Yeah, the, the denigration of drones and Top Gun Maverick kind of surprised me as well. Uh, the Navy has drones in, in addition to fighter planes, but uh, they're uh, a super prominent feature of, of the Navy profile. They certainly are in the Air Force. So what we could be seeing is interagency competition, you know, the, the denigration of the Air Force in relation to Navy hardware. But my suspicion is that, the, and you see this a lot, that the military is quite willing to acknowledge a limitation or a downside or a criticism in order to gain a little bit of credibility to make a larger point. And the larger point really is about featuring the fighter planes and positioning those as emblematic of what it means to join the Navy. Yeah, I wondered, I wondered too, if it might be a way of almost like incorporating a critique that they know is out there and like neutralizing it by acknowledging it. Yeah, I would say there's a certain willingness to engage topics or to acknowledge topics that have received public criticism in the past. And, and, and that serves a, an inoculation function. You might call it a limited hangout. You know, admit a little to hide a lot. One last thing on planes, and then we can move away from the move away from the gear and into some of the more pressing social issues that are kind of raised in the tropes of this movie. But the other one that I also noticed was the conspicuous lack of the F thirty five. Instead, we had the F eighteens as the sort of primary jet fighter, and then of course the heroic return of the old F fourteen that, for some reason, is being kept on a Iranian uh, <laughs> Air Force base. Um, but, but why, you know, like. Because this is one of the things that I think you also brought up in your uh, at least one of your documentaries. Why no F-35s? Like, why are we not? Why is this maybe not something that the military wants to put publicly on display in a cinema context? That's a very leading question. I think you know the answer to it. I'm, I'm yeah, I do. Okay, sorry. I, I, thought it would, I thought it would sound better coming from you than from me. So, Well, I, yeah, I think you're hitting on something really important there. You know, people ask, why not the F-35? Why the F-18? Why not the most recent cutting-edge platform? One of the answers is that the F-35 is still so controversial. I mean, it's the biggest boondoggle in military history. I think the, the price tag is up to $1.5 trillion now. And they and they still can't they still don't have a simulator for training people in this thing and there's still all kinds of problems like if one of these gets hit by a, a lightning bolt then the fuel tanks explode so the F-35 is still hugely controversial and kind of a, a black eye for the military in the past we know that they've been successful in inserting the F-35 into various productions in a kind of low profile way but perhaps they're wary of featuring it in something like Top Gun Maverick because they don't want to bait the public into an extended discussion. And that's one answer. They just don't want to stir up debate. Another answer is maybe more interesting, and that's the fact that the F-18 is right now uh, for sale. So just as Top Gun Maverick came out, the, a series of articles revealed that India is looking to buy a whole suite of F-18s from the U.S. government and by extension from McDonnell Douglas, who manufactures it. So in as much as Top Gun is an international blockbuster, it's also an international advertisement for certain kinds of weapons. Wow, that is fascinating. So a couple other tropes that jumped out in this movie, clearly approved by the military. One of the weirdest ones, the one that I was really excited to ask you about, there's almost no sex in this movie. It's, it's like the most unsexy movie of all time, despite there being a kind of weird 
flirtation between Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly's character, the bartender on base. Their relationship, I mean, it's very G-rated. There's one scene where they seem to have had sex, but the only way you can tell that is because Tom Cruise is shirtless and laughing. <laughs> like, that's the that's the indication that some sex was had. So how do you understand that in the context of military propaganda? Why would they want to strip all of the sex from Top Gun 2? Yeah, you'd think they'd want to sex it up as much as possible and make the military look as appealing as possible for potential recruits. But what you actually find in the documentation is that they're constantly wanting to draw down the sex and also draw down the language in order to get a rating more suitable to the demographic that they want to reach in terms of recruitment. So it's very likely that simple. They want to reach not only young recruits, but also their families who are often involved in that decision. And I would say that the second film is kind of dealing with the legacy of the first, which was really heavy, as everybody knows, on the homoerotic imagery. The director, Tony Scott, talked about drawing a lot of his aesthetic inspiration from men's fashion magazines, greased up bodies, etc. So it could be that the legacy of all that tempered the heterosexual love interest dimension of, of, of the second film. That was that was actually what I was going to ask about. I mean, first of all, I just have to say that uh, we are a professional academic podcast, but we are not above uh, piping in Kenny Loggins playing with the boys uh, in the background <laughs> of what you just said about the homoeroticism and uh, greased up men. Um, however, I will I will also I, I want to on a serious note, actually address the legacy of that first one, because I didn't know about the implication of like the direct implication of the first Top Gun movie in the uh, tailhook scandal, which you uh, detail a little bit more in your documentary about having kind of fostered this culture of basically like like sexual assault or rape culture in the military. Could you talk a little bit about that part of Top Gun's legacy? Just because I think, I mean, I can't imagine that it wouldn't have played at least some role in trying to tamp down the rating or at least the steaminess of it in the second film. Yeah, I would say that's that's part of the mix as well. I mean, in some ways, the military had a really bad experience in the wake of, of Top Gun. So in 1991, we had what was called the Tailhook Scandal, which was, you know, Tailhook was a, an annual convention of Navy aviators in Las Vegas. So on one of the nights, hundreds of Navy servicemen engaged in this mass sexual assault of more than 80 service women. Just a truly horrific scene. The Navy tried to cover it up at first, but then some very brave women spoke out and there was a congressional investigation. And in that report, they specifically cited Top Gun for creating the mentality, the conditions for this. So if you've ever asked yourself, why did it take so long for a sequel to come out? Part of the answer is that the Navy wanted to distance itself from Top Gun for a long time because of the bad publicity that came out of Tailhook. I mean, this is a case where they just didn't want to stir up the debate about sexual assault again. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, that legacy definitely reverberated and influenced the content of the film. I think the last trope that we definitely wanted to touch on was this kind of superficial cosmetic diversity in the film, like on the, you know, the team of Top Gun pilots and the the commanding officers of the mission in this film. You know, it's not an all white cast by any means. But there's no acknowledgement of that diversity, like among the characters, which that kind of jumped out at me. Like, I feel like in these kinds of outfits, it would be much more realistic for there to be some kind of jawing about about racial issues, like among the forces. And that never happens. It's like there's kind of this perfect racial harmony. So I wondered what you thought of that in the second film. Well, if you look at the numbers of Air Force and Navy pilots, you'll find that about 90% of them are white men. But if you look at Top Gun Maverick and the spectrum of folks that are represented there, it's, it's pretty striking. I mean, you'd think they'd say something about it in the movie, like Maverick has put together the most diverse fighting squad in the history of the Navy. But they, they don't say that. Um, they want to give the impression that this is sort of a, a natural and representative slice of, of, of Navy pilots. And it's just simply not. I mean, maybe you want to pat the film on the back and say, nice job with representation, but really this is just a form of, of tokenism. And in its worst form, it's it's an act of covering up the big race and gender problems that the, the Navy continues to have, especially in their elite fighter units. So it's less of an attempt to rectify the situation than to cover it up. You got to remember that this is a, a recruitment vehicle. 
the target of a lot of military recruitment, as everybody knows, is uh, low-income communities, and that includes a lot of communities of color. So they're working really hard to make sure that the military isn't portrayed as a hostile place for people of color. We see this going all the way back into the 1950s, where the office is getting rid of entire characters to make sure that there's no ethnic tension in the film. By the 1980s, you see a kind of pattern of tokenism, where the military is inserting characters of color into all kinds of officer roles and whatnot. This doesn't mean that the military is averse to representations of racism in general. They just don't want to make the military look bad. A good example of the difference is this film that came out in 2000 called Rules of Engagement. This is the one that the film historian Jack Shaheen called the most racist film in recent memory. It's just full of anti-Arab and Islamophobic stereotypes of the most vicious kind. It centers on this terrorist attack where hundreds of Arabs open fire on an American embassy in Yemen. First, they're protesting something, and then they all pull out guns and start shooting at the same time. And there's even images of young children pulling guns out of their robes and aiming them straight at the camera. So the DOD has no problem with racist depictions per se. They just don't want it to reflect badly on them. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's horrendous. And and it's it's important, I think, to at this juncture, not only focus on the the types of films and other cultural products that the military has thrown its weight behind, as you say, but also, I mean, just just for the listener who maybe hasn't picked up on this yet, what we're talking about here in this whole show is kind of a massive influence operation. It's hard to even call it a, a singular operation just because it has... Seemingly, I mean, if I'm understanding your research correctly, Roger, it has become more of an apparatus, like a, a, a sub arm of just about every branch of the U.S. military is that they have public relations offices that are literally sending script notes to uh, to filmmakers, to television producers. And particularly, one of the concepts that really kind of jumped out at me, and I think that this, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this was actually taken from their documents uh, is what they call showstoppers, mm. uh, the kinds of things that will explicitly cause a script to be rejected that will potentially, you know, disallow it from getting funding from various other sources or just the necessary funding that it needs, which could only come from the Department of Defense or uh, or other part of the U.S. Uh, defense state. Could you talk a little bit about that concept of a showstopper and how this has indeed led to some instances of even censorship, like movies that never saw the light of day because they had too many showstoppers? Yeah, that's a term that you see a lot in the documentation. It refers to anything that the military might deem a, a deal breaker. They don't keep a formalized list of showstoppers, but if you look through the documents, you can start to see patterns. Uh, this includes depictions of racism in the ranks, sexism, the military's unwillingness to deal with its sexual assault problem, anything that has to do with insubordination, uh, PTSD or problems with suicide, accidents that kill soldiers like friendly fire or aircraft that malfunction and crash. Sometimes they'll allow these problems to show up, but only if the problem is isolated and the military plays a central role in solving it. And then there are showstoppers that have to do with how our military is used. So war crimes, assassinations, torture, overthrowing foreign governments, and so on. They're really sensitive about the portrayal of the use of questionable weapons, like chemical and biological weapons. They are profoundly interested in maintaining public support for our nuclear arsenal. So anything that questions the wisdom of our nuclear policy or the security of our huge stockpiles is out. So that's where you get the rejection of films like Crimson Tide and Broken Arrow. I mean, you ask if there are instances where a military rejection led to the stoppage of a show. If you scan the military's own database, you find that there are dozens of films that got rejected and simply didn't get made. We can't definitively say that any rejection caused a film to go under, but it looks like it's a huge factor. We also have a lot of anecdotal evidence from producers and directors. Jerry Bruckheimer said that Top Gun and Pearl Harbor would never have been made without military support. A really dramatic example is a film that was never made called Fields of Fire. It's kind of a platoon-like movie. It was based on a book by Jim Webb, who had served in the Marines in, in, in Vietnam. The book at the time was on the Commandant's reading list for the Marines. This is a signed reading for Marine officers. And Jim Webb himself had just come off a term as Secretary of the Navy. So Webb in the film and the book had a lot of clout going into the script negotiation process. But the Pentagon rejected it anyway. They didn't care. 
They didn't like the fact that the script had soldiers using drugs, fragging, burning villages, executing prisoners. So that was it for Fields of Fire. It just didn't get made. I want to give you one other really dramatic example, and this is one I really like from the documentation. So I'm, I'm guessing neither of you have heard of the U.S. military liaison missions from the Cold War. I hadn't heard of them. I had to look them up. This is a program where the U.S. and the Soviet Union essentially traded spies. So Soviet spies would come over to the West and, and vice versa. It was a diplomatic gesture. I mean, there were times when the U.S. MLMs were the only real line of communication during some of the tensest moments of the Cold War. So in the early 80s, someone tried to make a film about it called Recovery, and they asked for military help. And if you look at the military's database entry on this film, it just says, the U.S. military does not want to assist in a film that glorifies the military liaison missions. So the U.S. public just didn't learn about this program that was designed to thaw relations between these two superpowers. So you haven't heard of that movie, but I'm guessing you've heard of Red Dawn from about the same time. The Pentagon was more than happy to support that one. If you remember the opening scene, it was Russian paratroopers descending into a schoolyard and then proceeding to murder all the kids in the school. I mean, it gives you a pretty good sense of the priorities of the entertainment office. They're much more interested in elevating the sense of threat, even if that means sacrificing history. Goodness, that thank you so much for sharing that example. That's so eye-opening. It's like the specificity of some of these examples, I think, is is part of what's so fascinating about this research. I mean, so just, you get a real window into that these institutions are being run by humans with very specific biases. So one that jumped out at me, I was like, I have to ask Roger Stahl about this, is the CIA's involvement in Meet the Parents, the, the Ben Stiller comedy. <laughs> uh, sure. What? Like, what, <laughs> what did they, so they watered down a scene in that movie? Well, we don't have documents about Meet the Parents from the CIA, but we, we do have testimony from CIA personnel. This is all coming via Tricia Jenkins and her great book, uh, The CIA in Hollywood. So Meet the Parents is an interesting case because it's, it's a comedy. It's about Ben Stiller meeting his girlfriend's parents and uh, Robert De Niro, the father, being uh, an especially intimidating guy. So at one point, Ben Stiller's character wanders into the basement and discovers Robert De Niro's character to be a CIA agent. He's got all kinds of memorabilia around and a lie detector and all kinds of scary equipment. And in the original script, there were supposed to be torture manuals on the desk to be extra scary. But the CIA happened to be consulting in this film and they asked for all those torture manuals to be taken out and replaced with photos of Robert De Niro's character with dignitaries and presidents and things like that. It seems like a trivial change, but you take all these trivial changes and add them up, hundreds and hundreds of them, and you get this kind of generalized whitewashing of the security state. At that time, the, the CIA was very interested in hiding the fact that they engaged in torture. And that's very different from the CIA's approach to depictions of torture now in the, the post-9-11 period, where they will often you know, even feature uh, torture, but within the context of a story that seeks to justify the practice. So shows like 24 or Zero Dark 30 would be examples of that. Absolutely. No, it really, like, it's it's difficult through a sort of audi auditory medium, which is why I'm glad you have the documentary. And I w will encourage our listeners at multiple points to go and watch it because it, it truly, you need to see the visuals in order to be able to, I think, uh, fully understand the scale of this like i mean we're talking about thousands of films and television productions not to you know to say nothing of individual tv episodes that have undergone this kind of treatment but we we've touched on this a couple of points in our conversation but i thought it would be pertinent to to talk directly about it now which is the sort of go-to framing for a lot of the script notes or denials showstoppers and what have you or even the sort of raison d'etre for the existence of these apparatuses in the U.S. military is always talked about in terms of accuracy, right? We are just there to ensure verisimilitude, you know, make sure that this is all, you know, uh, accurate to the way that it actually works in the military or in the intelligence community, which I think, again, in the in the film, it, it really gets 
explored the, the whole kind of like ridiculousness of looking at the accuracy of whether or not the aliens in Independence Day would really blow up the Pentagon or <laughs> ju- nah, they could just get they could take the White House, but don't touch the Pentagon um, <laughs> or or, you know, why we have our our battleships need to be accurately portrayed fighting off alien invaders. So I guess, you know, with the, those are some kind of ridiculous examples. But from your research and your team's research, why do you think that accuracy is that kind of go-to framing is it just because it's a bulletproof defense that no one can really argue with or is there some other reason for it yeah i think this is where the rubber really hits the road i mean the office claims that it's in the business to promote accuracy and often they're doing the opposite i mean you have to acknowledge that they they do care about accuracy with regard to a lot of things so you get your typical two or three pages of script notes and and request for script changes back from the Pentagon. And I would say about 80% of those are truly about technical accuracy. You know, how fast a plane can fly from Washington, D.C. to Florida, or where the badges go on uniforms, or how certain ranks would address another rank and what military lingo would be used. But then you get about 20% of the comments that are ideological in nature. They're politically motivated. They have to do with values or representations of the military. And really, this is the reason why the office exists. I mean, it's a public relations operation that's designed to influence public opinion about the military. And it's these hot button issues, the ones that we're debating constantly in in society, the use of the military, how the military treats its own personnel, that the public relations entity is is constantly trying to deal with through popular culture. So I I think you're right that accuracy, it's, it's in their charge, it's in the documents, it's in every press statement that they make, but it's, you know, in, in many cases, it is an alibi. It is a way of justifying the operation so that they can continue to make these ideological changes to popular cultural products. I mean, take, take a show like Jack Ryan, which is in its third season right now, a very popular show on Amazon Prime. Both the CIA and the DOD are involved in this series. So maybe it shouldn't surprise us that the second season was this scare story about the Russians giving nukes to Venezuela. And the idea is that the CIA has to go in and stoke a coup in order to prevent the president of Venezuela from using the nukes against the U.S. I mean, accuracy is a completely ludicrous scenario. I did want to bring up Jack Ryan at some point just because that, to me, was the most conspicuous example of a sort of direct mapping onto current events. Yeah, I mean, current at, events. At, at, at the time, <laughs> at the time that that second season was running, there was a coup basically being fomented, you know, presumably by the U.S. intelligence community propping up Wang Guaido, right? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the most egregious examples of the CIA or DOD using popular culture in real time to affect public opinion about an ongoing political situation. Yeah, so I I think, I mean, that's a great place to transition to the final question that we have for you, which, you know, when I was reading your LA Times article and watching the documentary, I was reminded of an article that you wrote a few years back that I found really interesting because it's relevant to some of my own research on mass surveillance rhetoric and leaks. You wrote this article called Weaponizing Speech, where you're really tracing how in post 9-11, you know, war on terror discourse, there developed this, you know, conceptual metaphor of information warfare that, that really started to be circulated more and more by the military and the intelligence community and their political allies. And I think, you know, one of the ways that you conclude that piece, I mean, it's, it's largely a you know, a really rich rhetorical analysis of this phenomenon. But I think one of the pitches you end that piece with is that we should decouple this metaphor. Like we we should maintain a really strong division between information on the one hand and warfare on the other, because when these two things become imbricated, it allows for things like journalism, like leaking, like even things that are clearly nonviolent crimes but we wouldn't want to call warfare. We start to use a war frame to talk about them and prosecute them, and that and that that leads to bad policy. But I was thinking about that article when I was thinking about all of this information operation work that the military and the intelligence community does in entertainment, and and it struck me like 
this stuff really does feel like information warfare, because in this case, we have explicitly, overtly violent institutions influencing our information space in a way that's that's designed to increase support for war, right? It's very difficult for me, like analytically, to disentangle all of this stuff we've been talking about from the broader war objectives of the military. And I mean, and just a really quick point, I, I got so mad <laughs> because I was thinking about how we kind of funded Top Gun Maverick through our military and then they sell it back to us at the end we have to pay twelve dollars for a ticket how is that fair like i'm (laughs) i'm picking up the tab on both ends of that transaction it's an interesting question how much exactly did you pay for that ticket in total well that's no no no. i I did want to mention that i'm really glad i saw it in the cheap theater like six months late because it was like four dollars which was awesome i guess just generally the, the you know to to wrap this up, the question I'm trying to ask is, do you see this as as more, you know, is it more accurate to call something like this information warfare or is that misguided analytically? Well, I'm, I'm so pleased that somebody found some of that earlier work of mine useful. That was all about the ongoing redefinition of cyberspace as an object of military control, the militarization of these spaces of expression. So because of this, I'm, I'm personally a little bit suspicious of the creeping metaphors of information warfare. At the same time, I think it's perfectly natural to ask, is what the military is doing through the entertainment media office a form of information warfare? And I guess I would urge us to think about different ways of, of considering it. I mean, the military has always been involved in some sort of persuasive activity, but for most of history, we've called that propaganda. And that's a, that's a handy word, although it, it comes with a lot of baggage. I think the most productive way of thinking about what the entertainment office is doing is just considering it military public relations. I mean, that's what it is. It's an information campaign that's designed to serve the institution and affect the political sphere, affect public opinion. It's analogous to some of the information operations we saw during the Iraq War, the, the embedded reporting system, or sending out retired generals to comment on the Sunday morning talk shows, without disclosing, by the way, that... Some of them are on the boards of weapons manufacturers and, in fact, sponsored by official Pentagon public relations. I mean, we knew a lot about the manipulation of journalism, but it's only relatively recently that we learned about the true scope of the pipeline between Washington and Hollywood. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, to the degree that this is, you know, partially like we, we don't want to make it out to be like we are just academics that are kind of nitpicking pedantically over these terms, because I mean, one of the things I did love most about your documentary, uh, you and your team really laid out the stakes of this very, very nicely towards the end. I mean, we're extrapolating a little bit here, but like a lot of the military interventions, things that lead to misguided escalations of violence in different parts of the world will happen by razor thin margins, right? Like if, you know, and, and I'm, I'm no electoralist, but you know, it's the, it's the notion that if you have just like a few more people in Congress who are going to vote down this uh, authorization of force, you know, that does make an appreciable difference to the degree that we have, you know, elected officials that have, you know, anti-war uh, or that reflect an anti-war sentiment uh, or anti-militarization, anti-interventionist sentiment within the public. So, I mean, I guess we kind of wanted to round it out here asking a little bit about if you have any ideas for like, you know, you you mentioned a couple of policy changes or at least suggestions for what we could do. Some things that would make a small but still appreciable difference, such as putting a disclaimer at the front of any movie that accepts uh, that accepts any form of support from the military industrial complex or the Department of Defense or getting specific with it. Are there any others or any other or did you want to extrapolate a little bit from a policy or a sort of a public standpoint? What can we do in order to create a sort of more educated uh, media consumer base? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. What do we do about it? Well, we're dealing with an institution that has been around formally since 1949 and informally all the way back to 1914, 1915 with the birth of a nation, which was formally supported by the army. So we're dealing with a really well-established public relations entity here. We've been able to document and confirm that the military and CIA have cooperated on about 2,500 films and television shows. 
That's about 10 times the number that scholars had previously assumed. So it's huge. It's pervasive. How do you deal as a democratic society with something like this? Well, in making the documentary, we hope that, that people would consider what it would be like to abolish this office. I think we could easily imagine a world without it, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest the movies would be qualitatively better. Short of that, it would be great if we could pass legislation that would mandate the automatic release of documents regarding these cooperative ventures. Recently, my colleagues and I, specifically Tom Secker, tried to get our hands on all of the Top Gun Maverick documentation. This was through a Freedom of Information Act request. And they came back and said, we have 20,000 pages, but to photocopy those and send those to you, we're going to require a payment of $10,000, which is money that we can't really justify spending on that tranche of documents. At least not now, not without a, a, a serious benefactor. It would just take us a long way if the military and CIA were transparent about their operations. You know, one other thing we could do is mount a legal challenge. There are provisions on the books that prohibit the, the military and, and the government in general from engaging in propagandistic activity and also censorship. We could challenge the office based on those provisions. And the last thing we could do, and I think this is the easiest, is to mandate that producers inform the public that their show had been sponsored by the CIA, the military, or some other governmental agency by putting a title screen at the beginning that discloses this. This would be an easy thing to do. The FCC already mandates that commercial entities disclose their sponsorship, and this has been on the books since the 1930s. So that's been one of the really satisfying things about this, this project, this documentary and, and the book project that we're working on, is that the solutions are available to us. So now it's just a matter of generating public awareness about the scope and power of this office and then, and then generating the political will to follow through with some of these measures to limit that power. I think it should be mandated on the posters and in the trailers for these things too, because if you just put it in the opening credits, then I've already spent my $12 <laughs> not realizing I'm about to get straight propaganda for two hours, right? Yeah, Jerry Bruckheimer should be forced to wear a jumpsuit like they do in NASCAR with all the corporate and government sponsors on it. <laughs> yes. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, put Bruckheimer <laughs> in the jumpsuit. That's the go. policy. That's our, that's our that's policy, policy right goal, there. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, no no way that that could be misconstrued at all. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking now, uh, not again to make light out of a very serious situation, but, you know, those old FBI warnings that I have are on the green screen of the, we, we need a DOD warning, we need a CIA warning, we need, we need all the three-letter agencies warning, uh, except this time not for criminal punishment of certain acts that may have been referenced at the beginning here yeah, yeah. i wasn't involved i just i just wandered in the room having to watch what was on i had no idea that's that's right that's You're right totally, totally an unwitting bystander absolutely i, I, I can that. see the spot at the beginning of the film you know like um you wouldn't allow the cia to hack your brain so why are you allowing them to hack your movies <laughs> you know it's black yes. and white and grainy Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it needs to take the 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 tone and aesthetics of the uh you wouldn't pirate a a car, you wouldn't pirate a or what what were the <laughs> Yeah, you got it. You nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> that it needs to be gritty, it needs to be shot in that like early 2000s style, honestly. We For sure. we could we could do much with this. All right. Well, Roger Stahl, thank you so much for being with us. I think this research is super important. I'm really excited to just get the word out more about it. And it's been a delight to speak with you. Uh, we wanted to just ask if there's anything that you want to plug at the end of the show here. Gosh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. Well, you've done a lot of very nice plugging for us so far. But I, I wanted to again say that we're really excited about our documentary Theaters of War, which came out in May of last year. It represents the cutting edge of this research. I mean, in the last six years, we've been able to amass 50,000 pages of internal documents that give us a high-resolution look into the internal workings of this extremely powerful public relations operation. And of everything, the documentary right now tells that story the best in the most digestible manner. We're also working on a book. It might be called Theaters of War, although we're looking at other titles too. That's obviously going to be a, a much more detailed treatment of the issue and, and hopefully the definitive, critical, scholarly statement. Uh, that's if we can keep it under 700 pages. Excellent. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I, and I did want to ask, is, is there any plan to make some of the documents available for, like, for people to 
to search through themselves or? Yeah, we're looking to build a, a digital searchable archive that assembles all the documents we've been able to collect over the years and, and make them available to journalists, scholars, and, and, and the general public. For now, I would urge listeners who are interested in looking at primary documents to check out spyculture.com. One of my collaborators, Tom Secker, has worked on this site for a number of years and has done the majority of our Freedom of Information Act requests. So typically when he gets documents via FOIA, he goes through them with a fine tooth comb and just does a bang up analysis. And the great thing is at the bottom of each article, you'll find links to the primary documents. So you can download them. Uh, if you're intensely curious about it, that's where to go. Amazing. Got it. And, that's fantastic. And for those of you uh, just who are curious about where you can see theaters of war, uh, I know we have a lot of academic listeners, but those of you who either your university library or public library, if you have access to Canopy, it is available on that streaming platform as well. Just wanted to throw that little plug in there too. Yeah, like you said, it's on Canopy now for the educational market, but we're currently preparing the film for commercial distribution. And that involves an exquisitely detailed and time-consuming legal review for uh, fair use, as you can imagine. Uh, uh, oh, wow. 350 possible fair use items uh, in that film. Yeah, and, there's uh, a lot of clips in it. There's a lot of clips. Uh, but once we're done with that, and that'll be this year, 2023, it should be going out on the usual streaming channels and services. Amazing. So hopefully that comes out soon and we can share the information about that. But we just want to thank you one more time, Roger Stahl, for taking the time and being with us today on Reverb. And to all our listeners, we will speak with you again soon. Thanks for tuning in and uh, enjoy the winter doldrums. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's such a pleasure to talk to you two. Thank you. All right. See you later. All right. Bye-bye. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock, with editing work by Alex. Reverb's co-producers at large are Sophie Wadzak and Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.